I vividly remember, I, I think I was 11 or 12 years old. It was a Saturday, and I hopped on my bicycle, and I said to my mom, hey, mom, I'm going to go for a ride in the neighborhood. So I go ride my red bicycle, ride through the neighborhood with a mission, because tomorrow was Mother's Day. And I had it in my mind. I was going to take my little five bucks that I had in my pocket. And you guys, uh, you know, some of you remember, like, it wasn't that you had to go to, like, the big chain grocery store back in the day. Like, a lot of neighborhoods just had, like, a grocery store. We had a red and white. Is red and white still around? We had a red and white down the street. I was like, I'm going to go to red and white. I'm going to go to the floral department. I guarantee you there was no floral department. It's probably like a couple flowers in a bucket. But I'm going to go to the floral department. I'm going to get my mom a dozen roses. Oh, yeah. She's going to be the favorite son. I am the favorite son. Uh, you can just ask my brother Jason, and he's uh, probably crying right now thinking about it on Mother's Day. But I'm like, I'm going to get a dozen roses. I remember walking in. I remember seeing the flowers there. They were a little bit misty, you know, because they spray them to keep them alive or whatever it is they do. And I saw a dozen roses, and I was like... Maybe one rose. Maybe I can afford one rose. I'll do one rose. So I bought one rose, and uh, I remember it had the little vial on the bottom with the whatever, like, juice in it that keeps roses alive for 10 more minutes. And so it's in there, and I remember riding home, and I had this clear this cellophane, cellophane package on it. I'm riding my bike. I'm like, I'm going to make her day, and I'm riding back, and I get back. And I remember having to keep that rose a secret for, like, a whole day. And I, I'm pretty sure I showed my dad. He was like, hey, cool. So you didn't go where you said you were going to go, huh? You went somewhere else. You should always tell me when you're going to go somewhere else. And I, I, I don't know if she remembers that rose or not. Mom, do you remember the rose? She sometimes listens to the sermons. Uh, let me know. But here's the thing. As a kid, Mother's Day is this day where you're just like, man, this person in my life that I love so much, I'm going to take care of them. Now that I'm an adult, uh, I have two teenage kids of my own. I've been living a whole lot of life. A couple things come to mind. First of all, what really struck me last night as I was thinking of this is like, my mom was easily younger than I am now that day that I gave her that rose. She was a younger mom. And I know that now she's experienced and done a lot more, of course. And, and now that I have kids of my own, I look at that and I realize that being a parent has a whole different weight to it. Uh, parents, have you ever looked down at your kids and been kind of like, sorry, bro, that you have to live in this world? <laughs> Things are rough. Things are scary. If you don't have kids, maybe you've just thought about like, man, what would it be like to raise children right now? And so I could throw a bunch of buzzwords at you, things like economy and politics, school violence. I mean, you pick a number of things. And here's the thing that I recognize now looking back. And this isn't a Mother's Day sermon or lesson or anything. It's just where I want to get into our teaching this morning. Is just this idea that when I look at the world, so often I'm just if I let myself, I'm like defeated. Oh, it was so much easier when I just had that little red bike and like I could win the day if I could go get a rose from a mom. But now I look at it, I'm like, what can I even do? Where can I even go? Here's the thing. I believe that God has an answer for that for you and for me. And it's a challenge that we have each and every day that we can wake up to. And there's a hope in what Jesus provides in our life. And so today, I want to step into a teaching series that's going to get us through like the summer. We're going to be in this teaching series for three months. And we're going to dive into Jesus' answers to the broken world. And we just saw in that bumper video that we just watched, the goal is that we not be conformed to this world, but that we be changed, that we be transformed. And that by extension, we transform the world. But how do we do that? If you got a Bible, I want you to grab it. Uh, we got some free Bibles back by the door over here. If you want to 
use one. You can keep it if you need a good readable version of the Bible or just borrow it for the service today. Get it on your phone. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 5 through 7 over the next three months. We're only going to be getting into chapter 5 this week. In Matthew 5 through 7, we find this expansive teaching of Jesus is called the Sermon on the Mount. There's a lot in there. And today I want to take a look at the question, how does the Jesus way make a difference? And the way is actually in the title of our series. We're calling the series Salt and Light. Salt and Light. You're going to learn how throughout our talk today. But the whole idea is this. If, if the Jesus way is going to make a difference, why is that? All year long I've been challenging us, challenging us to be a church that brings our Bibles to church and be a church that takes notes. Okay, This would be the perfect time for you to start that if you haven't started this year. To like be like, okay, I want to write some things down. Because we're going to take a deep dive through the entire section of the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5 through 7. We'll be into it's like the first week in August or something. I know right now we're like, August? Is that even like coming? Yeah, it's around the corner. And I want to see what this can mean to us. So having said all that, we're just going to jump right in. We're going to jump in. Matthew chapter 5 starting at verse 1. This is going to kick off our series And it sets up the whole Sermon on the Mount. It says, now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountainside and he sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. So prior to this moment, Jesus has made a big impact. Hundreds and thousands of people have noticed what he was doing. I mentioned last week when we talked about Nicodemus that a lot of people were paying attention to what Jesus was doing because he spoke like none other and he was doing these miracles. And so... There's this like opus moment that happens. And whether it all happened in one sitting and he did all the teaching at once, or maybe it's a collection of several of the teachings, we're we're not very sure. But I like to picture it as like one extended seminar. Maybe it was a whole day. Maybe it was a weekend. I don't know. Where he's going to go point by point by point and say, listen, if you want to know what I'm all about, this is it. And in this chapter uh, 5, verses 1 and 2, there's this thing. He he goes to the mountainside. He sits down uh, in rabbinic teaching. He's a rabbi rabbinic he's a teacher and so there was this idea a lot of teachers would use is like when the teacher's ready to speak he has a seat I've read that somewhere I don't know if it's true but for whatever reason Jesus sits down here so he indicates I'm ready to teach and he starts out with this really poetic section so try to take this in as I read it and we're going to touch on it a little bit later but it almost looks like a psalm. If you're familiar with the Old Testament psalms, it's just kind of got this pattern to it, this rhyme, this rhythm. You could maybe break up a song with these lyrics. But this is how Jesus starts out his opus sermon, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek. For they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. For they will be filled. And blessed are the merciful. For they will be shown mercy. And blessed are the pure in heart. For they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers. For they will be called children of God. And Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In fact, blessed are you when people insult you or persecute you or falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. 
In the same way, they persecuted the prophets who went before you. This little poetic opener is called the Beatitudes. And I don't know where I learned it. I think it was like Sunday school when I was a kid in church. But somebody once said, these are the Beatitudes because these are the attitudes you should be. <laughs> I like that. So if you don't know that little phrase, it's a good one. Uh, what is a Beatitude? A Beatitude is, it basically means these are the right attitudes to have with God. And this poetic section goes through a list of things. And um, I literally, I was having a couple conversations with people the last few weeks on my preaching calendar, I had planned on doing a nine-week series on just the Beatitudes. That's how rich I think they are. But then I read the whole Sermon on the Mount, and I've been watching The Chosen. I mentioned that last week, so I was like, oh, i got to do the whole thing. Um, but anyway, the Beatitudes are rich. We're not going to take a deep, deep dive into all of those, because actually throughout the next couple of chapters, Jesus is going to tap into a lot of those same concepts. But there are two big things I want us to note about this list, okay? There's nine things there. There's two big things I want us to note. The first thing I want to note is that the things he says in this list are just counterintuitive. They're countercultural. What? I mean, he uses phrases like poor in spirit and mourning and meekness. It's like, good for you if you're mourning. Good for you if you're poor in spirit. Good for you if you feel meek. And these are things that I think the world doesn't sign up for. Even the things that I think are noble. Uh, blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the, those who hunger and search, thirst for righteousness. Uh, purity. Like, these are good, noble things. But, like, if you're going to put them on the continuum of what the world appreciates, they don't appreciate those things. The world in general doesn't appreciate righteousness. Do, am I wrong? You've been around? The world as a general rule doesn't appreciate purity. It's not on our priority list. And so this list of things, including at the very end, and he doubles it up. He says it twice. Blessed are you who are persecuted. Persecution is the act of being basically abused for something that you hold dear. Like, persecution and Jesus is like, good job. And so this is a counterintuitive list. Who wants any of these things in their life if you're living the worldly life? But this is like the big red flag that Jesus is throwing up in front of this opus sermon to say, buckle up, boys and girls. Things are different around my kingdom. The second thing that I notice in this is that these people are blessed. Jesus calls these people blessed. Uh, there's a list of things no one would want to be, and Jesus is like, you're blessed. Blessed is maybe a more religious word or old school word, but it's a good word. We say it all the time. We also say it like when someone is, you know, like in the South, like, bless their heart. You know what I mean. <laughs> it's like, I don't want to be mean, but bless your heart. Like, what does the word blessed mean? The word blessed means like touched by the presence of God. It means encouraged by God's goodness. It means that God's hand is on this. If something is blessed, it means it's not just my own power that makes it special, but there's something divine being inserted into the scenario to make this better. Blessed, oh blessed, are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They will be filled. Blessed are the meek. They will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who, who mourn. Blessed, God's hand is on you because you're going to be comforted. So these are the things that I note, and these are the things that kind of it's a thread that goes through everything else Jesus is about to say in the whole next three chapters, five, six, and seven. Don't miss this. Jesus is about to challenge you for three months to live differently. The things the world values, God doesn't particularly value. The things that you may hold dear may not be all that important to God, even if you pray to him about it. 
he might step back and be like, I just don't know that that's best for you. But no matter where we are in our life, we are blessed if we are in the kingdom of God. It's as if God is saying, if you want to find me, look for these kind of people. They're blessed. That's the things I note about the Beatitudes. And then in verse 13, he just kind of kicks off his sermon. So that's kind of like his opener. I want to let you know things are going to be different. And he's going to give you this phrase. Now, I got a full disclaimer. I have taught through the next three, four verses so many times at Venture Church, so many times that I almost didn't do it. But then I said, how dare you? <laughs> the Word of God is powerful and active and sharper than a double-edged sword, and it will pierce us where we are. So let's just hear what he has to say again. He's going to go into these two metaphors that if you've heard them before, can I encourage you like me to say, how dare you? <laughs> Listen to Jesus talk, and if you've never heard them before, you're in for a treat. Because he's going to give us some very simple, straightforward, and manageable goals in our life. And this is what he says. He gives us two metaphors. And they go like this. Verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. In fact, the town built on a hill cannot be hidden neither do people put lamps under bowls instead they put them up on stands giving light to everyone in the house so in the same way let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your father in heaven this sound familiar every single week at venture church we end by saying all right go shine light in dark places that comes from this verse okay that's like every single week that's our, that's our outro, all right? So we quote from this scripture, or at least paraphrase it, every single week. Throughout this whole teaching, Matthew 5 through 7, Jesus talks about the ways his followers are going to be different. We just saw that in the Beatitudes. And he's going to dive into some traditional Jewish law. And he's going to dive into some culture things. But first, he just wants to give us two simple metaphors to set us up. Salt and light. Two things we're very familiar with. Two things that historically have been major parts to contribute to society. Salt and light. So let's just talk about them real quick. Salt. Salt was created by the divine to make French fries delicious. He ain't wrong. Salt's seasoning, right? That's something that salt does. But there's so much more to what salt... Salt has been like a major player on the world stage for a long time. Uh, the second thing that salt is really good at is preservation. Salt is a preservative. And so as a preservative, man, what happens is you, in, in the time before uh, refrigerators and freezers and stuff like that, yeah, I see a typo. You guys are all seeing it. Um, some of you are like, typo? I don't see those. Um, so there, there's a, uh, before refrigerators and before canning stuff and before all these things were an option, the best way to preserve your food for the next season was to just cover it in salt. Salt dries out food. It creates an environment where bacteria can't grow. It makes beef jerky. Like, it's good stuff. It dehydrates things and then it makes things laugh. Salt is a preservative. It's simple science. And, and then the third thing that salt's really good about is salt's good for cleansing and cleaning. And so just think about a day at the ocean where have you ever come away and you're like, my face feels really clear today. Or you had some cuts and scrapes and maybe you, you pay, uh, put some like saline solution. Saline is about salt. <laughs> it's what we put in our contact lenses. Uh, it's, salt is a big part of like medicinal use. It brings healing. In fact, uh, in early times, they would even mix it with other things, honey and herbs and things, and make a, like a poultice out of it. And it would be healing. And so, again, because it creates environments where bacteria can't grow and things like that. And so salt is huge. And, and in addition to this, because it was good for so many things, it was economically huge. 
Salt was used like a currency. People got paid sometimes in some history in salt. Have you ever heard the phrase, so-and-so, they're not worth their salt? Have you ever heard that? Or is that just super old people and then also me? Like, I don't know. Salt. So, like, to say someone's not worth their salt, it's like, I'm not giving you your salt ration. You just didn't earn it, right? So that's what it meant back in the day. Salt is powerful. Jesus says you are the salt of the earth. It's the very first thing it compares us to. Later, we're going to get compared to, like, sheep and goats and light in just a minute, a couple other things. Salt. Salt. My people must be a preservative in this world. In a world full of decay, brokenness, heartache, hurt, poison, sprinkle my people. May they create an environment of preservation. My people must be healers. Like coming into people's lives and helping their brokenness come back together. By how? Introducing them to the living God. But we're the salt. Creating a healing environment. And yeah, to make french fries delicious. We should bring the season of God everywhere we go. We talk about pockets of heaven. The kingdom of God being like pockets of heaven everywhere you go. And that people just look at you and be like, this is just better. There's joy, there's gladness, there's love, there's forgiveness, there's all these things. So salt, you are the salt of the earth. And the next line is huge. If the salt loses its saltiness, how does it become salty again? How does that even work? Look, dads, I know it's Mother's Day, but dads, real quick, I know you've done this, okay? Don't lie. Don't lie. You've been grilling the chicken. You accidentally dropped one of the chickens on the ground, right? It was an accident. You didn't mean to. Pick it up, you put it back on the grill. It's 600 degrees in there, okay? It's going to be fine. They'll be okay. Sorry, kids, if I just blew up your categories. It happens, right? You can do that with food, all right? Cook it off, it's fine. I mean, you pick off the grass. It has to Salt. You drop a handful of salt in the kitchen floor, do you just sweep it up and put it back in the shaker? No. That's disgusting. Like, I don't know what it is, but the thing is, like, that's, that's the picture I want you to see. There's no salvaging this salt. <laughs> it's... What does Jesus mean by that? Does that mean like if I'm not perfect, if I mess up ever, if I lose my saltiness, I can't be restored? No, the message of Jesus is that there's grace for your mistakes. But the whole point is, I want to create a world in which there's safe places to go. Salty, good places. There's a whole lot of salt shakers in this room, so that way when I'm having a bad day, there's still some good salt in here. And I can go borrow some of yours. You follow that? You're the salt of the earth. They call this the upside-down way of the kingdom of God. A lot of people have called that. The idea that you can come into a scenario, you can act different, you can be different, and you can change things. The upside-down kingdom. Then he talks about light. We've talked a whole lot about light. Every Christmas Eve, light is like my sermon. You, you should try writing for 10 years a Christmas Eve sermon, and the theme is always light. It's difficult, okay? Light, it's, but it's such a big deal. We're reading uh, the Gospel of Matthew right now, which, by the way, is one of the biographies of the life of Jesus. That's where the Sermon on the Mount takes place. But there's four biographies of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. John is a place where they talk a lot about light. And so Jesus is described in the book of John as the light. Let me look at a couple of them. John chapter 1, verse 4. He's talking about Jesus. In Jesus, in him was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. And the light shines in the darkness and the darkness does not overcome it. You understand light intuitively. We have spotlights so that you can see me better, so it's more visible online, right? And so light is a very, it's hard to function without light a lot of times. Fast forward, John 18, verse 12. This is describing Jesus, describing himself. 
Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So we talk a lot about light and dark because it's simple. We get it. You understand the value of turning on a light in a dark room or turning on a flashlight or using your cell phone to see something under the couch because it's impossible if you can't see. And our world is full of dark things. I mean, just the stuff that Casey was just talking about, if you look at like, well, yeah, there's all these developing countries and other places and they're fine. But no, like there's dark darkness in third world situations. And to take the gospel of Jesus into that is just like bringing a big old spotlight. But you don't have to go to Mexico or Uganda or Colombia to experience that. In our city, we've got neighborhoods where gang violence and shootings and kids getting shot is a real thing for people every day. Abuse, teenage pregnancies that weren't planned, fatherless homes, motherless homes, childhood hunger. The statistics keep getting worse, but it's like one in every four kids in our county, in a very developed place, lives in food insecurity. That shouldn't happen. Kids shouldn't have to go to bed hungry just because their parents have no idea where to find food for them or aren't capable of providing it. People call it the vicious cycle. It's darkness just churning on itself. And so it's no wonder that God says, you know what that needs is some light. So I'm going to come as the brightest light. And here's the other thing. If you follow me, you get to be light too. He says, you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Of course not, because it's up there. I see it. (laughs) Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. What good would that do? Can't see anything. No, you put it up on a stand. You hang it from the ceiling. You put it on a chain. You want everyone in the house to be able to see I just read this book uh, about the London Blitz during World War II, the two-book series. And if you don't know this part of history, it's during World War II, and Nazi Germany has taken to bombing. They're flying over the English Channel, and they're bombing London. And it wasn't just because they were the bad guys. We were all bombing each other in our cities. This is, like a, this is a, a really bad period in history where before, like, wars were mostly fought, like, out in big fields and on pasture lands and outside the city. But in this war, it got ugly. World War II, a lot, too. But it's just like, we're attacking civilians. We're, blowing, we're trying to blow up water lines and, and, and destroy the transportation system and wreck, and, and wreck the morale of the people in the country. And so this is what's happened. But this book is about, in London, during what's called the Blitz. And so every night for months, well, most nights for months when this weather was clear, there's bombers flying over. I mean, hundreds and hundreds of bombers are just dropping bombs. <laughs> Blowing the mess out of London. If you didn't realize that was a big part of the war, you should look into it. It's, it's devastating. And as a result, the, the British government put into place a mandate for a blackout every night. The idea was like, if we can make it really dark down here, the airplanes can't see where to bomb, so maybe we'll spare some lives. So like you had to close your curtains with blackout curtains every single night. You could get fined and thrown in prison if like you had your windows open, if you had a bright light outside, if you were walking with a flashlight. This wasn't happening. There were no street lights. Cars put covers over their headlights so that you could only see just a few feet in front of you. It was bleak. It was gloomy. And there was this constant fear that you also might die. This is darkness. And on top of that, like, people were routinely just getting hit by cars and buses because buses can't see you. You can't see them coming. You might just be walking in the night and just fall and hurt yourself or or die, (laughs) falling into, like, a crater from a bombing the night before that you didn't know was there. And I paint this picture because this is, like, this is darkness, This is gloomy. This is sad. But after the war, some cool things happened. 
the blackout was lifted. And there's all these stories of the celebrations that were happening, man. People were just throwing up their curtains and just like lighting candles and lights everywhere, spotlights everywhere. They're having bonfires just in the public streets, just burning stuff. Like, woo, it's light outside because that is the nature of light. We celebrate. Think about all the celebrations we do with light. Birthday candles and Christmas tree lighting and, you know, we just, we just feel so, a concert and, you know, the lights flash. It's like, it's celebration. And this is the imagery that I think Jesus has in mind when he says in verse 16, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. When people live the Jesus way, they're drawn to it. I mean, when you offer hospitality to someone, and they smile, and they say, thank you for that cookie. (laughs) You know what's neat? God gets the glory for that. That's what this passage says. These are Jesus' words. It's an act of worship. When you step out in, in righteousness and decide to do the right thing, or you decide to step into a chaotic area and, and be a peacemaker, and people see that light, God gets the glory when you work with people who are cutting people down or talking dirty or just being immoral or being dishonest or whatever, and you decide to be different, maybe you just remove yourself because you're like, I just can't be in that. Or maybe you're bold enough to say, come on, y'all. Like, let's not, let's not do that. Or you go and you, you hang out with the person that they're joking on, and you love them. That's a worship service. Honestly, probably a worship service better than anything we've done today because you are light And when people see your light, the things that you're doing in Jesus' name, they glorify your Father in heaven, even if they don't realize that they're doing it. A pinprick of light that people are drawn towards until they walk into a room full of God's presence. This is just the preamble to Jesus' sermon. Salt, light. And I couldn't think of a better way to kind of put a bow on it than just kind of look at the sports world. I find that like athletics is a great like microcosm to like understand bigger principles because things happen so quick in sports. And so in the sports world, there's this thing that happens. um, Well, first of all, in any sport, every team's job is to win the championship, right? You want to win. That's your goal. You're not trying to lose. That's not what you're playing. You're playing to win. You don't want a participation trophy. You want the big one, right? And no place is this more true than in college football. Like, there are so many championships to win. Everyone could win a championship. Like, there's, like, bowl games for everybody, but they don't all win. And so probably in, in college football more than anywhere else, the most pivotal player is the head coach. In other football scenarios, you, you had a good quarterback, you could probably win a championship. you got a great defense, maybe a killer running back, you could go far. But in college football, it rises and falls on the, the coach because they got to create a culture, they got to create a program, they got to have good recruiting, they got to have a whole philosophy. This thing happens. So this funny thing happens every year with college football where at the end of the college football season, about a million college football coaches get fired. Like all of them, pff, you're all get fired. And then they all get hired by the other schools that fired their coaches. This big old carousel happens. It's, it's a joke, but it, it happens, and the coaching staffs get fired, and the trainers get moved around, and all things. And then this moment happens, okay? So the new coach comes in because they couldn't beat Georgia and Alabama and Clemson, so they had to go coach somewhere else, okay? So they get in there, and they have this moment. I'm imagining it's in like late July, early August. I don't know when it happens. They got the crew in the locker room, and they got the media there, and they got the boosters raising money. And the coach comes in, he's like, all right, guys. What we've been doing here hasn't been working. But I'm here to change that. We're going to do something different. 
Yeah, because I got a new philosophy, and I've been in the cave writing up some schemes, and I got coach so-and-so over here. He's the best one in the world. And he, they talk themselves up, and they're like, things are going to change. The culture's going to change. We're going to practice different. We're going to play different. We're going to be better. And then like nine months, they don't win, and they get fired, and they have to do it again somewhere else. But this is the picture that happens all the time. People realize if something's not working, you got to do it different. Every now and then, a killer coach will come along, and he will truly make a difference. And they'll change the program, and they'll have a new philosophy, and they'll get better recruiting, and they'll have a better team, and then they'll build a dynasty. And for five or ten years or longer, maybe even their, their, uh, the people that follow them up can even continue in that legacy. Why? Because something changed. The Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is standing with these people, and he gives the Beatitudes, and he says, salt and light. And I feel like what he's saying is, guys, the way we've been doing this has not been working. But I'm here to change all that. We're going to treat people different. We're going to see God differently. We're going to act different. We're going to carry ourselves differently. We're going to speak differently. We're going to raise the bar on what it means to be moral and say, let's honor God with every part of our life. He says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, they will inherit the earth. And blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful. For they will be shown mercy. And blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers. They will be called children of God. And blessed are those, even those who are persecuted because of righteousness. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We're going to live different. We're going to value different things. You are salt on the earth. You are the light of the world. And since the Jesus movement began, there's been no looking back. I mean, over and over and over, communities have been utterly remade and broken families have been restored and corrupt people have sought repentance and found renewal and rebirth in Jesus. And people like you and people like me who are stumbling around in the darkness, kicking our toes because of the blackout, can have the scales fall away from our eyes and go, oh my goodness, to God be the glory. You're here in my life. Things are different now. Let me make a difference in this world. And this week is just a step into that journey that we're going to be on for three months. I want, to know that if you, if, I want you to know that if you struggle in all this, like, I don't know. I don't know where I stand with God. Can I tell you something? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. You will be filled Hunger for it, thirst for it, look for it. For this week's challenge, it's simple. I give a challenge every week. I say, just let's do this. This is simple. Write it down. You might just be able to remember it. You ready? Read your Bible. That's the challenge. Specifically, read Matthew 5 through 7. That's the whole Sermon on the Mount. And break it up however you want to. 
Do a little section at a time, a little bit every day. Read it all in one sitting. Or read it all spread out over a couple of days and then read it in one sitting later. I'm going to tell you, over the last few weeks, I've read it uh, in one sitting multiple times. And it makes a huge difference when you read it in one sitting. And you can see how different things Jesus is saying is really connecting to other things that he already said. It's beautiful. Dig into it. There's nothing more powerful that I could say to you that Jesus hasn't already said. So that's my challenge. Let's get into the word this week. For the next three months, let's read this. Challenge yourself to memorize portions of it, whatever it is. That's the challenge. Let's let Jesus nurture our hearts with what he has already said. Thursday, uh, Perry and I went for a walk in the neighborhood across the street from our new church building on Darlington Avenue. Uh, uh, most people in that area call it Market North, even though it's actually called something different, the, the Market North community. We went with our friend Kim Caesar. She's been in church with, here before, uh, with us in here before. She runs Soaring as Eagles, which is a program that helps children in uh, literacy, and they do after-school programs, and they do weekend programs. They've, they've got a thing for preschoolers. And so we were walking with her to find preschool kids and, and hand out these flyers. It's a free preschool thing that they're doing, preschool jump start. Um, if you're a teacher, by the way, she needs helpers. She needs helpers that are good young kid teachers that could help uh, for about six weeks starting June 19th. But anyway, we're out there, and I love having been able to walk through this community a bunch of different times and meet different people, and I'm learning a lot of names. And, and, and if you've been out there, you know this is a community where people walk around a lot. You can just see them. And so once you learn someone's name and then you meet someone else, oh, this is my friend Chris, and, you know, we get to meet each other. And there was a moment I was standing on the front stoop of this one lady's house, and she was just sharing about her life. And she was sharing about how things have been rough. They've been hard. They've been hard for them. I mean, I don't even know her whole story. I just met her this past week. But as she was hearing about the preschool program, then there was a moment where I got to say, yeah, well, my name's Chris, and uh, I'm the pastor of a church that's about to open, like, almost across the street from your house in just a few weeks. We've been working on it for a whole year out there. We're super excited. Told her a little about our church family. And her whole demeanor changed. And look, I don't know if this is profound to you guys, but it hit me hard. She said, wow, this community needs a church. <laughs> and I've heard that from a lot of people who walk around there. Their children, almost 400 of them, that live right on that street. We've seen the demographic studies. There's 2,700 individuals that live on our little corner of Wilmington. There are people who are living on government support that live next to people in houses that a lot of you couldn't afford to pay rent for. It is a diverse community. But nothing could be more true than what this lady said. This community could use not just a church, the church. But Jesus Christ is our head because we need to live different. To bring salt, to be light, and to live in the upside-down kingdom of Jesus. Let's pray this morning.